0: guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Andrew Wallace. He is the founder of a group called Unseen UK. It's a group that really uh, strives to address the issue of human trafficking and modern day slavery. So Andrew, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today.
1: Great to be with you today.
0: Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in the issue of Human trafficking, to begin with.
1: Um, I think I'm probably like most people of my age, certainly in the UK, but probably you know around the globe. We grew up, we went to school, we learned about the transatlantic slave trade, and then how this guy called William Wilberforce passed, uh, finally passed legislation in the UK Parliament outlawing the trade, and then um, you know everything flowed from there. Uh I, I've got a varied background, you know, corporate, uh, public sector, uh, faith sector, and it was um, a colleague of mine was in the Ukraine and came across uh, someone that was uh, about to be trafficked and ended up having to, to cut a very long story short, ended up having to buy her off the trafficker uh, in order to stop her uh, ending up in an exploited situation. Um, so that story came back, and I've been to the Ukraine a number of times and knew it was fairly wild west, you know, this is back. 15 years ago. Um, I thought, well, that's different. Um, what's trafficking? Started sort of investigating it. And then, sort of within a, a matter of months after that, uh, another friend of mine that had spent uh, their summers working also in the Ukraine, trying to sort of address the social orphan problem there, came back and said that these kids, when they get chucked out of the orphanage at 16, a lot of them end up getting trafficked and you know, we tried to talk to the authorities about it but they didn't really want to engage so here were these two stories about trafficking um, which sort of piqued my interest and in sort of doing that research around what was going on um, and you've got to remember this is in you know in the mid noughties um, our understanding then of what human trafficking was was primarily around sexual exploitation and it was the narrative was um, eastern european girls trafficked to the west or to the u.s um, and and sold on into the sex trade, um, but I came across this report that talked about how the traffickers were super smart, and they would use the regional airports in the u k to avoid detection at the hub airports like the, your Heathrows your Frankfurts your amsterdams um, in, in order to traffic people to the to the u s um, as well and again, they were going into airports that weren 't the major hubs and it just struck me that, um, and I live in a city called Bristol in the west of England, which was one of the sort of the major sort of cities that was involved in the transatlantic slave trade, that here we were 200 plus years on, and this form of slavery, which we now call modern day slavery, um, was still taking place. And I did what I thought was normal, and I, I wrote to my city um, Politicians, councillors, and to my MPs, and also to the Chief of Police, and said, "Well, what is going on? Here's what I've discovered. What are we doing to tackle this?" That ultimately led to a, a meeting with a senior police officer, and I had a. Remember, he came to my office, and we had a four-hour off-the-record conversation where he kind of like peeled a layer off the city, and then a layer off the United Kingdom, in terms of what was going on. Um, and at the end of it, he challenged me. He said, look, any idiot can write letters that create a sting. You've done that. If you want to retire on that, great. Um, but actually, what are you going to do? And I stupidly said, well, what do you need? And, and his need was, from a policing perspective, was as, as they uncovered victims of trafficking, they, they had nowhere safe to put them. Um, so he said, I, I need that. And I, I said, OK, I'll do that. I have no idea what that looks like but I'll do it on one condition, you you become my first trustee, because at this point, you know a whole load more than I do. Um, and he agreed, and because of his seniority, he was able to get me into the home office, and then our national crime agency, and I um, went on this very rapid uptick in terms of discovering what, what the issue was. So that, that was my sort of, my journey into this whole issue.
0: Wow, so there's there's so many issues to kind of cover with that. Um, you mentioned the uh, Wilberforce well um, legislation. What year was that?
1: Oh gosh, I knew you'd ask me that. It was in the. Was it early eighteen hundreds? Eighteen hundreds, yeah. I can't remember the exact year. Eighteen oh three, eighteen oh seven. One of our listeners will know, and they'll they'll contact you and say, "What do we? What do you guys know?" No,
0: yeah. no. I, I know it's like eighteen uh, hundreds. I, I think it was no. obviously it was pre Civil War. It was pre Civil yeah. War. Yeah. in terms of just historical context and in terms of dealing with the issue but <clears throat> i mean even the american experience shows even if you deal with the exper- with the with the situation of slavery you still end up with well what do you do next how do you help those who have been enslaved who need to trans you know transition to a normal reality and I mean, I imagine a lot of what you're dealing with in terms of helping the people who have been trafficked are PTSD and, you know, issues around trust. And I mean, it really gets to being fundamentally, how do you live a normal life after you've been tra- uh, tra- uh, trafficked?
1: Gosh, that, I mean, that's such a great question because... I think it gets really to the heart of, of the issue and, and, on, and on, on a number of different issues. So, you know, you're right. What happens to someone that, that falls into this situation? Um, and I remember talking with a psychologist, because um, let me give me, you my working definition of what we mean by modern slavery, because I think it then helps us understand, you know, what happens to the victim? What are the bigger issues that, that we need to deal with? So in essence, modern slavery is this illicit commodity trade. Um, it's a trade that is about supply and demand. The commodity is a human being. They get bought, sold and exploited in order to generate vast profits. And the, the chances of the perpetrators being caught and prosecuted is pretty low. I, I mean, it's 0.01% I think globally in, in terms of being caught. So, um, and it's a trade that's worth at least, and this figure is 10 years out of date, but $150 billion profit per annum ar- around that. So it is all about the money. The way you make money is exploiting a human being. Back to my psychologist friend. But
0: it's it's not just in the sex trade. We're talking about slavery in terms of uh, labor exploitation, in terms of working, whether it's in mines or, uh, you know, I have a friend that really went into detail in terms of what happened in terms of ships in the uh, Pacific, in terms of people being trafficked to be used on uh, fishing vessels. So I mean, it it takes on a whole number of different dimensions, but really, it's about somebody controlling another human being, right?
1: Yeah, it's 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 somebody exerts total control over somebody else in, in that whole process. So you you've lost that ability to make decisions for yourself, um, and and you are not free to leave that situation, we, you know, without fear of violence and retribution against you or your family in that whole process. So. Th- What happens when we commodify individuals and we exert psychological controls and or physical violence or threats of violence against an individual and and they're coerced, and and that's the key thing into doing what they have to do, is, you're right, most victims suffer from PTSD. Um, Many victims that we identify, that are identified uh, around the globe have suffered uh, physically, Uh, there's emotional trauma there's just the, the, the embarrassment and shame of being duped, um, and, and, and you add all of that. So you have a severely traumatized individual. And then I, I suppose for us is how do we take someone on that journey from being a victim to, be, to becoming a resilient member of the population, again, not vulnerable to re-exploitation? That is a long and tortuous road. Um, you know, Psychologists will tell you if you suffer from PTSD of the type the victims of trafficking suffer from, it is a a minimum of seven years before they can talk about what happened to them without re-traumatizing themselves. So it's this long-term sort of view that we need to take in in terms of that. And I think what we've done globally, you know, both in the US, UK and around the globe is for the last 15 years, what we've focused our efforts on, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but it's been about how do we build a safety net for victims when they're found? Um, and I started unseen saying, Yes, I want to meet that. And that was the request to meet that immediate need. But actually, I'm more interested in how, in how you turn the tap off. Because it isn't just sexual exploitation, it's forced labor, it's domestic servitude, it's forced criminality. Um, and in extreme cases, it's organ trafficking as well. So there's this multi billion dollar industry trading in human beings. That's really allowed, has been allowed to come back on our watch in in our generation. Um, And so a lot of my work now is, whilst we as an organization deal with, if you like, uh, the realities on the front line. So we provide services to victims that are identified. We run the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline, the equivalent of the National Human Trafficking Line in, in the US. So we work with all the major sort of what we call blue light agencies so police and uh, paramedics and fire service and local government agencies and we work with businesses uh, in helping them tackle the fourth labor issues in their supply chains all of that frontline work we want to use in order to inform government and governments around the world in terms of how to legislate well how to implement correct policies and challenge those strategic issues um, because to me it's it's about systems thinking systems are perfectly designed to deliver the results that you get well the the results are what forty point six million people in slavery, this billion dollar industry that's we're not happy with those outputs, so how do we change the system
0: so how do we change that system? I mean it's like like you said if you're if you're just dealing with the output, you're really not changing the system that exists where that is able to survive is it Is it a matter of kind of the economic system that we've developed in the past 30 years that really is really all about the bottom line and, you know, really discounts any, from a corporate perspective, discounts any sort of, you know, attention to the value of a human life? Is that part of the cause or is it something more insidious and more deep?
1: So like I said, part of my background is commercial. So in some ways I feel like the the poacher turned gamekeeper or is it gamekeeper turned poacher? I'm never quite sure which way it works. But I think what's happened in the last, you're right, 30 or 40 years is that we have had um, rampant globalization um, and it has been driven by, you know, how can I maximize the the, the bottom line? Um, So procurement is predicated entirely on what is the profit margin? And if you, excuse me, if you put that pressure all the way down the supply chain, then actually you will create the environment for, at at best, businesses having to cut corners Mm. um, or subcontract at short notice because I can't give you 60,000 t-shirts in yellow by tomorrow because you know my output of the factory is 20,000 a week. And so why are you even asking for 60,000? And at worst, it just creates the environment where corners and corners get cut and cut and cut and actually We all know from business that the the biggest line on on your your expenditure is your payroll line. So, well, if you can have free labor, then you've taken that out of the equation. Um, So I think what's at fault here is what we call the extractive profit model of capitalism. It's extracting as much profit out of it. It just creates the environment for these abuses to take place. We've seen in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, this thing around CSR, but it hasn't really... um, still hasn't really challenged these things, but actually what we're now seeing with what's called um, ESG, Environment, Society and Governance, is just now we're starting to see some focus on the on the S. Um, and th- this is about how do we create those business models that yes, they do need to make profit, but it's sustainable profit and it's long-term profit and that we're not Um, screwing the planet and screwing individuals in the process. And I think, you know, part of the the solution is legislation, but part of it, I think, is also saying, well, what are the the upsides for doing the right thing? And often, you know, when we talk with businesses, they're full of people that want to do the right thing, they just don't know how, because they're stuck in this system. Yeah. And so it's about, let's build the economic argument for doing the right thing. Um, and that happens on, on, on a number of levels. And I think what we've just seen in the last few years, especially from the investor community, is saying, well, actually, this issue of modern slavery and labour exploitation is, for us, is just another form of due diligence that a company should be doing and ensuring that that's not not, not there. The legislation that has grown up around the world in terms of reporting what companies are doing around modern slavery, well, why don't we vote on those at AGMs? And why why don't we... You know, as investors make some decisions around that. That to me is kind of like step one. Step two is, okay, let's talk about the economics of what happens when we do the right thing. So for example, if you were to take one, say global apparel brand and you take one line, say a pair of jeans um, and say, well, what happens if we do the right thing all the way down the supply chain? So we, we adhere to the principles of decent work as defined by the ILO, the International Labour Organization, all the way down the supply chain. Well, and that presupposes you know where your supply chain goes first. So maybe the first thing is, <laughs> where does the supply chain go? But then apply the principles of decent work and apply the principles of a contextualized living wage all the way down the supply chain. What happens? Now, f- for our listeners that are consumers, because they'll be going, oh, my gosh, this, the price is going to be scary for a pair of jeans. The price of a pair of jeans goes up by about 25 cents. What's more interesting is what happens at the other end of the equation. Because what happens in those factories, say in Bangladesh, where it is predominantly women and girls that are are in those factories making those jeans, by paying a contextualised living wage, those mums can support their families, which means those children can go to school. And we know all the economic benefits of of kids being in education longer. You know, the economic uplift is, is so much quicker. The economic uplift is quicker. You're actually reducing the vulnerabilities to exploitation Bang. in that whole process. Yeah. And also, if you look at quality assurance and productivity, it, it goes through the roof by doing the right thing. So you have to say, do the, if we do the right thing, then actually there are all these benefits that flow that are broader benefits, the societal benefits that will actually help us address the issues of forced labor and modern slavery around the globe. But that's just, that's just one thing.
0: But the fact that it only cost a quarter in terms of the price increase to do that, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. So why isn't it being done? I mean, is it a matter of society coming to business to say, you know, what the hell? Or is it a matter of government, you know, instituting, instituting some sort of basic common sense? Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I think it's a combination of things. So I, I think what I've observed is, and, and often the pushback you'll get from businesses, and it isn't just around say power and everything else is this pushback about price. You know, it's, this is driven by the consumer, whether it's B2C or B2B. And I would challenge that notion and say, well, who educated whom in, in the whole process? You know, what we've created in the last 40 years is this addiction to cheap, cheap, Services, cheap goods, cheap labor. Um, and we've lost the value equation. Like, do, do I value the things that I purchase? And I think, we're, you know, we're waking up at an environmental level to, to the huge cost that that has. And, and what we would say it isn't just an environmental level, there's, there's a, a huge cost at a humanity level as well um, around that. So I think it's, it's challenging that sort of belief that has grown up. And so, well, you know, well businesses
0: tell- businesses are offloading that cost, right? It's not even that it doesn't exist. It's that they're just shoving it off to society to pay the price mm-hmm. of whatever that differential is.
1: Yeah, but, bus- but businesses were involved in the education of society. So, yeah. you know, when we rapidly globalized, we educate We we're basically, the mantra was... It doesn't really matter where it's made it's it's about what it costs and and you know and we can ship just in time and get it to market and everything else and so we we hermetically uh, sealed the consumer from the reality of what it takes to, to get that item to market and, and what the, the the true cost is you know and 40 years ago we, we've been talking say you know from supermarkets about loss leaders you know a, a around that in order to generate and and all of that is just fed into the system so part of my challenge to businesses is, is re-educate your consumer uh, around that, because we're not talking about this, this vast... Here's the upside of globalization is, you know, that there isn't this massive uplift in terms of the costs of goods. There is an uplift, but it, it's not huge. And I think it can be borne. I think there is a role for government in, in legislating smartly. There's a role for investors in terms of, of demanding that businesses do the right thing. Um, and there's, there's a, a role for the consumer to say, actually, I don't want to be purchasing products that are tainted with slave labor. Um, and you know, we've seen this you know, just recently in terms of um, the, the US's use of the tariff act in, in banning goods from Xinjiang in China and, and the whole Uyghur for flavor situation. But it's not just China, it's Malaysia and Indonesia. And, you know, and we, we've had our own issues here in the UK in terms of sort of the Leicester apparel factories with one of our major brands. So it's not a problem that is always overseas. It's a problem that's also local. You know, and I've been to the US numerous times, You know, and around forced labor, there's issues within the agricultural sector, the apparel sector, and, and so on. So let's, let's not kid ourselves, it's a problem that's over there, it's a problem that's here, and that's a problem that's global
0: simultaneously. Exactly. What, um, now, one of the reasons we had connected, I, I saw that you posted something about uh, the UK passed a uh, anti-slavery legislation recently. Can you tell us, tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, so in 2015, it was the very last bill that became an act in the UK Parliament of, of our coalition government. Um, and I was actually in the House of Lords observing when that bill became an act. And it involves a man in black tights marching a piece of parchment through the palaces of Westminster. It's very anachronistic, but you know, what we're like for that, for that in the UK. The, the back story to that was in 2011, I was asked by a think tank in London to carry out a review of the UK's response to modern slavery. So we took two years to do this review, looking at um, what the UK was doing to tackle these issues. Um, and that report came out in March 13. Um, And it was pretty damning in terms of the the UK's response and said, you know, there's a number of things to do. One of our headlines was we need modern slavery legislation. So legislation had grown up piecemeal, was scattered across a whole bunch of bills. Um, And and then it was called human trafficking as well. So nobody really knew what human trafficking was. It was a technical term. Um, So, you know, both in terms of law enforcement, uh, but also the general public and media. It was kind of like a backwater issue. When we published the report, we got super lucky in that we managed to sort of be the headline news for the 24-hour news cycle. Um, So it gained a lot of traction. The government didn't help itself because its initial response to our report was we think we're doing okay. So it was very easy for us to then say, well, look, here's 80 80 recommendations that says the UK isn't doing great. But one of the top recommendations was um, bring forth primary legislation. Not that... um, it was necessarily groundbreaking legis- uh, legislation, but it was giving focus to the issue and saying, this issue is, is uh, alive uh, uh, and real uh, and important. Um, and um, within eight weeks of the report coming out, I ended up in the cabinet office, sitting around the table with the UK cabinet. Um, and our then Home Secretary Theresa May said, well, based on this report, we're going to bring forth primary legislation. And then I spent another two years in and out of Westminster helping the politicians sort of um, draft um, the legislation. Now, two years may sound like a long time, but that's just not a long period of time in order to go from literally zero a standing start to getting an act passed. Mm-hmm. So it's not the greatest legislation in the world, but it, it was landmark. And that was the, it was the first time you had a country saying we're going to bring forth primary legislation called about modern slavery. Um, And the bit that we led on between 2013 and 2015 and and really um, argued for strongly was what we call transparency and supply chain legislation that required big companies to talk about what they were doing, Mm -hmm. tackling these issues. So yeah, that, that was the journey of how that modern slavery act came into, into being and and the part that I played in it.
0: Are you familiar with uh, California's transparency act?
1: SB 657. Yeah. So I met um, Julia Ormond, who the actress who uh, has a not-for-profit called Asset. Um, and they were the, the the lead organization that brought about SB 657. So I met her in London in 2011. She told me about what they've just passed in California. And, and I just went, well, that's, that's genius. Because what it's not doing is beating up business. Because... There are good people in business, there are businesses that are trying to do good, the right thing. It's just saying, tell us, disclose to us what you're doing. Um, and so we just said, okay, well let's, let's try and do that in the UK and then you know from the UK let's, let's go further and, and see what, what else we can do. And if you like, the snowball started in California and it picked up speed in the UK and now we've seen the Australians do it and the Canadians looking at it and the Kiwis are looking at it. And then just this last week, the European Parliament has passed what they call mandatory human rights due diligence reporting. So this, what I call this slow moving tsunami of transparency legislation requiring business to you know, take responsibility for its supply chains for the conditions in which goods and services and labor occur within that supply chain and saying, actually, if you're at the top of the shop, you do have a responsibility all the way down the supply chain has grown apace pace since 2010. So you know, in, in 11 years, um, that the pace has really picked up.
0: So, what's the what's the consequences if somebody finds if a company finds that they have human trafficking in their supply chain and choose to do nothing about it, or somebody finds that they have human trafficking that was undisclosed?
1: Um, so, under under the UK legislation, uh, the Home Secretary has the authority to take a company to court if it hasn't produced a statement Mm. um, around that. In five years, they have taken zero companies to court. So this is where legislation falls down. You know, governments legislate, but if governments then don't use their own legislation, then, Mm. um, and that's why people say, Oh, you know, the legislation is toothless. And I go, well, go back and read the legislation. You know, it's, it's not the legislation is toothless. It's, it's the enactment of that legislation. What that's led to in the UK is there were calls for upgrading of the legislation. So they're gonna, the the proposal is that there'll be mandatory reporting on that. They've created a government central registry um, and um, they're they're gonna introduce fines for not reporting. Now what the mandatory human rights due diligence legislation says, and there's been some um, primary um, court cases that have just passed here in the UK and in Europe. And I know that there's one underway in the US around uh, child labor in the cocoa sector. Is this principle of where does responsibility within the supply chain lie? Um, and the the court cases have said, well, the responsibility lies at the top, you know, the the business at the top of that legislation. What the managing human rights due Dil- diligence legislation says, yeah, that the responsibility goes all the way down the supply chain. So you have to uh, do. You, you must do due diligence. There's a complicated uh, tongue twister for you. Um, and you must deal with what you find um, and you must make remediation and restitution in that whole process. So I think in a very short period of time, we will see companies having to take responsibility for the circumstances and the conditions in which their businesses operate and their supply chains operate, which for me is great because that is the way that you, you get into finding Modern slavery, and one of the things we say to businesses is, is report what you find, you know, because that, that tells me that you're then being proactive in looking for it. If if your stance is, well, we'll do something if we find it, then you're in the wrong stance with dealing with it. You you should every business, regardless of the sector, should be in the stance of when we find it, what what are we going to do? Because I don't think there's a sector or well, there's anywhere in the globe where this issue isn't. Um, uh, of importance and of relevance to the business. So
0: what, uh, what role do you think investments play or investment management, for example, um, pensions, um, trusts and so forth? You know, what role do those vehicles play in terms of trying to effect change?
1: They play a massive role. Um, and I think they should be, mandating businesses to report what you have found not that that then becomes necessarily a a a cross against that business or a red flag against that business because it's back to that point of if a business is if you look for it you'll find it in in a business so let's just sort of ditch the facade of we haven't got a problem we we have got a problem the question is then how do we deal with it so first step is, is go and find it report what you find report how you've Dealt with it, what lessons you've learned from it, and how you're applying that back into the business in that whole process. The second thing is, I think they, you know, just as consumers don't want necessarily their funds in, say, tobacco or increasingly in fossil fuels, etc you know, is, is de invest from those businesses that aren't engaged. So even at a level of, so in the UK, the UK legislation touches about 18,000 companies. We have 4,000 companies that have never produced a statement. Well, just on any risk profile, why would you be investing in those companies? Just, I mean, just, you know, ask them, but then get out. <coughs> and then, oh, excuse me, that was my dog. Um, and then I think it's up to investors to say, um, we want to vote on your statement and, and vote on the actions that you're taking. It's, it's not so much the statement that, that I'm interested in, it's what what are the actual steps that that business is taking and is it iterative and it is that you know are there key performance indicators against it and that you know that should be of key interest to to investors um, because you know I've seen statements that year after year say we think modern slavery is a is a terrible thing and we have some policies and procedures okay that's year one year two we think modern slavery is a terrible thing, and we still have some policies and procedures we haven't taken any steps actually what you should be saying is we think modern slavery is a, is a terrible thing, but we haven't taken any steps this year. And, and it, you know, it, the basic KPI reporting just doesn't happen. So yeah. you know, what, what are you actually doing? What are you finding? How are you um, addressing the, the issues? Not just the issues itself, but the wider issues as well. You know, how are you ensuring that you are hearing from the, the worker voice? How are you ensuring that your audits aren't just a tick box exercise you know, that are announced three months in advance, etc. How are you ensuring that you get the the voice from, uh, say, third sector organizations on the ground who who really know what's going on? Why are you continuing to operate in countries where you've got, uh, say, in the Middle East, you know, the kafala system, which is basically tied employment with with no freedom to leave? Um, Oh, we call that modern slavery. Um, You know, all these things ask the questions. Um, And it's a bit like sort of any due diligence process. You ask the questions until you're satisfied with the answers. And you've got the evidence to back that up. Investors have a key role to play.
0: Is there there a plethora of organizations able to handle the due diligence required? But I imagine, like normally in corporations, this isn't they're not trained to do this sort of due diligence. It would take a professional organization with the background to be able to do it. So is there enough capacity in the system to do that right now? It would seem like that would be kind of a growth industry if we were to take this seriously.
1: Yeah, I think it, the short answer is no, no, there isn't. And and B, yes, it, it is a growth industry. Um, and I think it, it's, it's a legitimate cost of doing business because if, if you don't do it then actually what are you saying and and i think it is all it, it comes back to this extractive profit thing which is you know what can we strip out of the equation so we can extract as much profit mm-hmm. and i think now consumers and society as a whole are saying oh hang on a moment that the pendulum has swung way too far this way we need to come back this way because it has dire consequences for people and planet
0: no doubt what um um I had a number of other questions, but I uh, got lost in the conversation. And what would what's the what's the state of the U.S. situation in terms of addressing uh, trafficking? I know California seems to be kind of on the lead in terms of its transparency of supply chain, and I don't know how effective that's been. It's been a couple of years since I've checked in with the people there, but. Um, where does the U.S. stand by comparison? Um,
1: I think I I would start with with this statement, which is I don't think there's a country in the world that you would give a gold standard to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we might struggle to even get to bronze um, if if we tease that analogy out further. I think in the U.S., certainly around forced labor um, and actually during the pandemic and, and just before it, I think the the use by the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and now continued by the Biden administration. I hope you're impressed with my knowledge of U.S. presidents from a Brit. <laughs> um, it was the the use of this 1920s 30s Act, the Tariff Act, in, in order to ban goods coming into the U.S. market that were suspected to be tainted by forced labor? I think I think that's actually. Talking with businesses, that's one of the most effective tools in terms of driving business change. Mm. In this um, era of just-in-time deliveries and everything else, the last thing you want are your goods held up by customs um, because there are suspicions of forced labour, and then you as the business have to prove that it isn't forced labour. So conversely, it's forcing businesses to know what's happening in their supply chains and and, and prove that Mm. um, in order that they can access to their goods. So I think actually that the U.S., leads globally on that. And in the UK, we are working now to sort of, um, you know, having followed California, we'll follow the US in terms of bringing tariff act in. And I I think you need this triumvirate of transparency legislation, mandatory human rights due diligence legislation and tariff act. That's the belt and braces that you need to get to. Obviously in California, you have SB 657. um, But when it comes to the US in terms of working with survivors, I, I always have to remind myself that you're 50 countries in one. Um, and every time I come to the U.S. and I've been loads, I, I, I always get slightly confused about how the country is responding to this issue. So I think in a U.S. context, there is a sort of strange fascination with, with sexual exploitation. Um, and you, there, there is, and I'm, I'm not disputing it, there's a lot of child sexual exploitation that takes place in the U.S. nationals within the 50 states as well. But let's not kid ourselves that there isn't an issue with both U.S. and foreign nationals, I think you call them aliens for some reason Um, uh, that forced labor, domestic servitude, um, as well as sexual exploitation takes place um, uh, across all 50 states uh, in that. Now each state has its own human trafficking task force um, um, and uh, that works to varying degrees of success across the states. But you don't have this sort of federal level coordinated response across all 50 states which i think is the achilles heel but it's it's the way that your country is structured whereas say within the uk is we have a national referral mechanism for victims that works across the the four nations of the united kingdom um and i think that's there's a there's an advantage to that in terms of you can coordinate and deliver similar services um and and it is it's centrally or federally funded in that whole process that said, I think victims that engage with the process in the U.S. can get access to what's called a T visa, which gives them the right to re- remain in the U.S. You know, if they've contributed to uh, a police investigation. Um, and you know, there were fears when that came in that you know you'd be swamped with with people claiming all that. I don't think it's ever got above 500 people in a year. Um, it, it's quite hard to get, but it, to me that seems a humane response. To individuals who, for very legitimate reasons, often cannot go back to their source country because it would place them straight back in a position of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I think what the U.S. needs to look at is what form of mandatory human rights due diligence legislation it wants to be involved in, uh, and it needs to enact. And then, probably at a federal level um, and or you know, across the, the fifty states, transparency in supply chain legislation needs to take place because. In essence you don't want to create an environment where you can do business in one part of the world and avoid the strictures of that legislation um, the point of legislation should be about a level playing field and, and these are the parameters on which um, we're going to uh, do business that said you know globally if we look at the un sdgs um sdg 8.7 says we'll eradicate modern slavery by 2030. well if we carry on as is we haven't got a hope i mean I think I was reading something. We need we need to find ten thousand victims a day, every day, if we're just going to address the forty point six that we guesstimate are the number of people in those situations. And and my view is, okay, that's 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 a good headline, and and it focuses, but it's it's missing actually. Let's step back to the strategic level. Let's go to the helicopter level and say, what are the things that we need to change strategically, so that this you know, we are tackling this supply and demand trade. Uh-huh. That we're we're creating the environment where it is both publicly not acceptable um, and, and you've got, you know, business doing the right thing and, and consumers doing the right thing. And I think the thing that people forget, and you know, you started with Wilberforce. Let's bring it back to him. You know, he trying to get that legislation through parliament, he failed more times than he was successful. I parliament bet. Through parliament. Yeah. But actually, and this is the bit that people forget, the thing that changed was actually public opinion. Hmm. Because it was the public saying, we're not gonna buy sugar, because we know it's the circumstances in which that sugar is made, i.e. Hmm. slave labor. Hmm. And, and when the public stopped buying goods, <laughs> um, and this is, hear me, this is not me advocating for boycotts, but actually, it brought the the slave traders, the sugar barons, to their knees because their business model went out. So let's change the business models. And, and investors are a key part of that, but lawmakers are as well, um, as are consumers, whether they're businesses or consumers, just saying this, this societal response is what's needed if we're going to tackle this.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, no doubt. And, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, Citizens United as is- drastically warped the political culture by corporate donations so you know anything that gets done in terms of a political standpoint is going to be really drafted by lobbyists and then passed on to politicians which obviously isn't you know a really positive approach for society meeting societal goals and you can see the impact of like those kinds of changes with what happened with fossil fuels. You know, um, the lack of money um, being produced by fossil fuels over the last number of years and has really helped in terms of the divestment movement growing and not giving them access to capital, but then also allowing the opening for other changes like, you know, canceling the Keystone. So. You know, we really need to um, look at changing that aspect, I think, if we're going to address the business aspect of human yeah, and and supply chain. And,
1: and, and I think it is this mantra of people and planet, um, yeah. you know, that, that, that it, it goes together. So I think, you know, my views in terms of, of this issue, it's kind of 20 years behind where carbon was 20 years ago. Um, and, but let's not make the same mistakes and wait, you know, we don't, we don't have another 20 years to wait. You know, there's already millions of people in, in exploited situations and they don't need to be.
0: And it seems like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like with the economic situation, whether it's from 2008, 2009 and the current crisis, but economic instability around the world creates more victims. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, post the pandemic, you know, we don't yet know what the economic fallout of the the pandemic is going to be. Um, Yeah, we were all talking, you know, a few months ago of a a V-shaped, you know, bounce and all that. We we all know that's that's not going to be the case. And wherever you have that economic uncertainty, it just creates vulnerability. Um, And, you know, we've already seen uh, within... know the pandemic itself we you know the the u.s uh didn't allow ppe equipment from malaysia into the u.s because of the allegations of forced labor there you know and yet other governments around the world are still including my own government still procuring from malaysia when there's clear evidence of of labor um exploitation taking place that's ultimately decisions you know that's that's ethical decisions that that need to be taken you know every country in the world has outlawed slavery um great But again, you know, what what legislation are you going to put in place? And then are you actually going to apply it? And and for me, it always comes back to the system, which is actually, you know, we can tinker at the edges, but it won't get us where we need to get to. And we we need to have these bigger conversations around what are the fundamental push and pull factors that that allow slavery to take place? You know, that that, um, if... If large sections of the global population are kept economically depressed, then we shouldn't be surprised that they want to migrate in order to improve themselves. Well, Well, if there isn't safe migration in that whole process, that creates vulnerabilities around that. Large sections of the world work in situations of, again, economic deprivation, will change the extractive profit model, you know, society, lawmakers, investors as a whole saying, well, that, that's not acceptable. We'll deinvest. you know, we'll, we'll de-list you from the stock exchanges in that whole process. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't operate like that. Um, and, and then we've got other factors, you know, which, you know, I, we can't control or we're all going to have to face up to as a global population in terms of climate change that is going to force people to move, um, you know, wars, famine, persecution, you know, all, all the stories that you and I can re- read in the, the press day in day out have, have impact but to me that says okay well that's you know if we if we hoard all all of the the wealth in just a small part of the world and we don't address these issues those issues will come to us whether we like them or not um, if we have massive economic disparity even within countries as well it creates uh, that if we if we are not you know, uh, teaching people about gender equality. We see that work working out in terms of exploitation. If around organ trafficking, if we don't have a system where, um, you know, you have to opt out of organ donation as, as a person around that, then you create the environment for people to take risks and go around the globe and other people, you know, th- there's cause and effect on, on yeah. all of these issues. I'm not completely pie in the sky and saying these will, 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 you know, we can deal with these rapidly. And, and then these problems won't exist. No, of course not. But I think there are fundamental things that we can do that will radically change both the perspective on the issue and the response to the issue. And, and it calls for courageous leadership.
0: Awesome. I appreciate your taking the time to uh, share with us today. I mean, this has been uh, enlightening to say the least. Uh, if people want to follow up with you and learn more, how can they reach out to you? Um,
1: they can find me on LinkedIn. So just just look for me on LinkedIn around that, or they can find me on Twitter, um, or they can find my organization Unseen UK across all the social media channels or via our website, um, unseenuk.org.
0: Awesome. Well, again, Andrew, thanks for taking the time to chat and uh, look for doing it again.
1: Likewise.